And God, we sung this song about your goodness, that you're always good. And Lord, we have the tendency to feel so confident to say those words that you're always good in times when things are easy, in times when things are going well. But God, we know from the scriptures that you are indeed good when we have provisions, when we have what we need, when we are in relatively good health, when we can afford groceries and gas. You're good. You're good that we have breath in our lungs. You're good that we can be mobile. You're good. And yet, Lord, we, in this place today, we confess to you and we want to be honest with you that this world is hard to live in. Because for all the, the good things that you grant to us, there are times where there is pain, where there is where things are just difficult. And Lord, at least for me, and I, I'm sure for many here, Lord, we, we confess to you that at those times, it surely doesn't feel like you're good. Sometimes we ask ourselves where, where you are and how come you're not coming through for us and how come you're not providing for us. And Lord, we have a testimony in the scriptures that you are a God who not only is good because of the things you give us, but you're also good in the things you withhold from us. And beyond even all that, you're good even though hard and difficult and painful things happen in our lives. Because you are a God who's not wasteful. Everything is working for our good and your glory. Everything. Every tear we shed, every painful experience we have, every time we've been slighted or slandered or gossiped about, every time we've experienced loss of any kind, you've permitted it, you've sent it because you are good and you want us to be more and more like Jesus, which is the greatest good that we can have. So, Father, teach us through your word. Teach us, Lord, how to, in, any, in every situation, to give thanks. To be able to say with our mouths, believe in our hearts, that you are always good. And, Father, for us to be able to do that, you have given us promises. You have given us the testimony of your word. You've given us an abiding Holy Spirit. And I pray that by that spirit, through the power of the spirit, through the revelation we have in your word, you would use all of that this morning to remind us that in this world, as hard as it is, you have not left us, nor have you forsaken us, that you will preserve us, that your grace is sufficient for us, that you are the God who has overcome the world, and in you, we also overcome. So God, teach us these things. Because we may acknowledge them today, but tomorrow we may have already forgotten. So press it into our hearts. Cause it to take root in our hearts. And may it bloom and blossom. So that our lives will bear the fruit of steadfastness and patience. Confidence and security that you are our God. Teach us now, we pray. 
and we'll give you the thanks for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning, church. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, uh, I want to say hello, and I would love that opportunity at some point to get better acquainted. Um, there's a couple things that I want to let you know about, um, if, especially if you're new to our church. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here. We have a couple different ways that you can get acquainted with our church, and, and we could get to know you as well. One of them is when you come in, there's a little QR code uh, at the doors, and uh, you can take a picture of that, click on the little button. It'll give you a bunch of buttons that you can uh, choose from. And uh, one of them there is, I'm new. And if you just hit that button, I'm new, it'll take you to another little screen where you can put in your contact information. That way we can get you on the email distribution list where we send out an email every Thursday. It has the outline for the sermon. It's got the bulletin. It has various announcements that are important for you to know. So all that stuff is in there on Thursdays. If you want to be added to that, uh, we can do that for you. Another way to get to be connected with our church is we have a connecting point. As you head out here, you look to the left in the lobby, there's some folks that are there. I try to get there as quick as I can after the service, but sometimes I get uh, stopped and whatnot. Uh, but I try to make my way out there, and I would love to meet you, love to talk. Uh, we have other pastors that are around and folks that would love to help. Um, so that's the ways that you can kind of let us know that you're here and for us to give you a hearty welcome and to answer any questions you have. A couple announcements. Um, as you leave too, you'll see to the left, there's a table out there. Gideon's International is here. And they're an organization that works with the local church trying uh, to make the word of God available to everyone. And so if you want any more information on what that ministry is and how they work, there's some folks at the table that would love to be able to talk with you, answer whatever questions you may have. As you know, we're entering into graduation season. And uh, we have everyone from TK kids, kindergartners, fifth graders, eighth graders, 12th graders, I don't know, 16th graders, whatever. And uh, they're all graduating at some level. And uh, we want to let you know a couple things. Number one is Sunday, June 5th. The first Sunday of the month is when we do promotion Sunday. That is, if you have a third grader, they're now a fourth grader. If you have an eighth grader, they're now a ninth grader. You see how that works? promotion Sunday. So uh, if you have uh, whatever, like a fifth grader and uh, now they're a sixth grader and they try to come to the fifth grade class, they're going to get kicked out. <laughs> um, so anyways, we want to let you know about that. Uh, high school graduates. We know of a number of high school graduates. What we love to do is we love to bring them up on the stage and cap and gown. And then uh, we pull them up here and we ask them some questions like, you know, just typical questions they already know. It's like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And uh, it's the worst question ever to ask a high school graduate because they're like, I don't know. Um, and, but anyways, they come up, they talk to us about what high school they're graduating from and what their plans are uh, for the coming years. And I always love that because I just know deep down, if I was in their shoes, I'd be tempted to lie, man. It's like, yeah, I graduated from whatever, Liberty High School. I'm going to Harvard. <laughs> like, people are like, oh, yeah. And it's like, nah, I'm going to DVC. But anyways, uh, so hopefully we'll get some honesty out of that. So if you're a high school senior, um, please, please let Stephen Mendez uh, or Vanessa know in the office uh, that you're going to be here so we can introduce you, pray for you, commission you, send you off, and all that kind of stuff. If you're a parent of a senior, uh, let us know, and we'll get uh, them on the list. And last thing is this. Speaking of student ministries, this Friday is our summer kickoff. What we like to do is uh, we like to have a time where we're just hanging out on the plaza. It's a time for you parents, especially because of Promotion Sunday. Encourage you, current fifth grade parents, current 
eighth grade parents come so that way you can meet your high school youth pastor, middle school youth pastor. You can meet the leaders. You can have the kids interact with people. It's a fun time. There's food and games and whatnot. We'll be out there and it'll be a good time. Yes, I'll be there. It'll be a good time. Um, There's food, so I'll be there. So that's the way it goes. All right, if you notice, my face looks different. Uh, People have asked me all morning, they're like, oh, when did you get glasses? And I was like, (laughs) when I was 13. Um, So I've been wearing contacts for most of my uh, life. And uh, as you well know, supply issues means my contacts have been put on hold or whatever it's called until the end of June. And uh, so I'm wearing glasses. So I had to go another route. I've got contacts coming. So anyways, that's how. So I look smarter than I am. I get it. Uh, but it's different for me. All you who wear glasses, I don't know how you do it. There's something on your face. Like it's, it's just there. I can see it, you know? And it's like, whoa, this is weird. So anyways, all right. We're in a six-week-long series called Union with Christ. It's uh, in him. You can see the little logo that's there. It's pretty, pretty cool. You see the in in him. Uh, and Every week, we've been trying to label or uh, title the sermons the starting with a P. We began the first week with providence, our providence, uh, the providence of our union with Christ. Where does it originate? Uh, where does it come from? And then we talked about what it produces. That is holiness. It's to produce righteousness within us. We talked about its purpose, and that is to praise the glorious grace of God for all that he's done for us in Christ Jesus. Last week, Pastor Bo preached on the price of our union with Christ, how Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, has purchased for all time the saving benefits and spiritual blessings uh, that, that God has promised. And this week, we look at the promise of our union with Christ. So here's from the get-go what I want you to know and where we're going to be headed in this sermon is this. Our union with Christ is a promise that secures us in Christ. Okay, I want you to know that. That our union with Christ does something for us. And one of the things it does for us is it provides a promise that you can be secure in Christ. That matters greatly because we're living in a very hostile world. We're living in a time in which our faith uh, is challenged in ways that it hasn't been challenged before. We are living in a time when it's just difficult uh, to be a Christian for one reason or another. It's not that it's unprecedented, no, definitely. Uh, It's been hard always. But in the difficulty, you and I have developed a kind of lethargy or apathy or inability to know how to endure, to know how to have long suffering, to know how to be patient in the midst of affliction, and how to endure various hardships. We just grown to not be able to do that because I think in part, we expect God to always and only make our life easy. And yet God has never promised that. And yet we think he has. So today I want to walk us through the reality that we live in a very difficult world, a very challenging world. Pastor Bo talked about this last week, that the world hates Christ and the things of Christ. And you and I experience that and also many other hardships. And those things oftentimes threaten our willingness to walk faithfully with God. And I want to show you today 
how understanding our union with Christ can help you face anything in life with confidence and assurance, knowing that you are secure in him and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Those who have ears to hear today, this will change your life. And I told somebody earlier, because they mentioned this, they go, man, I felt, and they were in the first service, I felt like that was pastoral counseling for the whole church. And I said, yes. The things I'm gonna say today are in part the culmination and the result of 18 years of full-time pastoral ministry, counseling with people and listening to people and realizing most of the answers that I'm giving or most of the counsel that I am offering it all kind of boils down to this topic, that our union with Christ is a promise that you can be secure in him, and that will change your life. Lord willing, God will do that for you today and continue it. So what we're going to do is start with what Pastor Bo began last week, is helping us remember that we live in a hostile world. Many people have forgotten that or they fail to see that or they choose to ignore it but here's the reality there is a contrast between the world and the things of Christ there's direct conflict in fact where the apostle John says do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world now watch this contrast if anyone loves the world the system which is opposed to God if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty black and white. Do you see it? That's like, uh-oh. And why? Well, it's because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Hedonism, materialism. It's all from the world. And the reality is the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, the world is offering you fleeting pleasures, but God is offering you infinite joy. And for one reason or another, and I still can't figure this out, why I did this for so long in my own life and why people continue to choose this, but people are like, nah, I want fleeting pleasures more than abiding everlasting joy. I want that. I want it now I know it's going to go away quickly, but I don't care. I want a quick hit. When God is offering you eternal, everlasting, infinite, utterly satisfying joy. And so what John says is, if you want the world, you can't have God. And the evidence that you want the world and you love the world is proof that you don't have God. So there is conflict. There is contrast. Now, with that as our background, let me just stop and let me remind you, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We've read it multiple times. I'm not going to spend time reading it all, but I want to focus our attention to verse 13 and 14. This is where we're going to narrow our focus and look at this beautiful promise of our security in Christ. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, in Jesus, you also... You believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Sometimes when you see this in English, it's very difficult to make sense of it. And that's because the run-on sentence in Greek in chapter 1 is very difficult to translate. It doesn't have punctuation. And so you're kind of like, okay, where do we put punctuation to help this? So I want to stop for a second, go back, and I want to make sure that we, even though you're not, you don't necessarily care about grammar, it's important. And I'm going to point out some grammatical things and, and show you some stuff so that way you can grasp this, okay? So first, in him, in Jesus, you also, all you believers... He says, when you heard the word of truth, now he's going to answer the question, well, what is the word of truth? It is the gospel of your salvation, okay? So when you heard the gospel of your salvation, it could read, and secondly, when you believed in him, Jesus, something happens. You see, when you hear the gospel with faith, something happens, and that is you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. I know you know what sealed means. It's like, I don't know about you, but if you've ever eaten kimchi, nope, okay, it stinks. And if you don't seal your kimchi jar, you'll regret it for weeks. Gotta have a strong seal. And yet the Holy Spirit is described as the seal on our lives. And who is the Holy Spirit? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God has an inheritance for us, which he promises to us, but at times we question whether or not we actually have it. So God gives us a guarantee that it is rightly yours by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which results in the praise of God's glory. Why does that matter? Because we live in a world that hates Christ and hates his people. And so when the world hates Christ and hates his people and makes life miserable and life is up and down and it's full of storms and all kinds of things, we have the tendency to question God's goodness and we have the tendency to question whether or not God is there for us. Will God really come through? And so we need to remember that you are sealed. You are guaranteed the things that God has promised. And the sealing and the guarantee come to us in the Holy Spirit. But first, let me walk you through the reality that we live in a world which is in conflict with the way of Christ. Firstly, we see that the world hates Christ and his people. Where Paul, or excuse me, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you need to realize that it has hated me before it hated you. So there, there's no blurring here. The world hated Jesus, and the reality is because the world hated Jesus, it also hates Jesus' people. And to add to that, The reason why the world hates Jesus is in part what Jesus prays in John 17. I have given them, referring to his disciples, I have given them your word, he says to the Father, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. In other words, Jesus gives the disciples the word of God, and when the disciples speak the word of God, just like Jesus was speaking the word of God, the world hears that and they go, nah. 
No. And what is the word of God that Jesus was speaking? It was compassion. It was forgiveness. It was grace. But if you remember, he often called people brood of vipers. I don't know about you, but that might be offensive. He tells people oftentimes that they are sinful, that unless they repent, they will perish. He tells people, in essence, you are under the just wrath of God and will be condemned unless you turn from your sin and believe in me. Now, the world doesn't like hearing that stuff. They're like, whoa, I'm not sinful. My neighbor is, but I'm not. No, no, no. There's no wrath of God. God is love. So when you speak a genuine word from God, the people will hate that because nobody wants to be told that they are sinful and they are going to hell. Okay? Jesus warns us ahead of time, look, if you're going to be my follower and you're going to have my word in your mouth, you're going to live in a world which is antagonistic to these things. But he tells us ahead of time, which is such a gracious thing to do. Here's what Jesus says, John 15, 19. If you were of the world, like if you desired the things of the world and you loved the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world and I, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. He's saying, look, they persecuted me, they hated me, and it was because of my word. So you're going to follow me and you're going to speak my word and therefore you're going to get persecuted and people are going to hate you. But I'm telling you ahead of time. <laughs> As though that helps. It's kind of like, oh, okay, so life's going to be miserable. Like tomorrow you're going to wake up. Can you imagine this? Somebody comes to you and say, hey, tomorrow you're going to get in a car crash. What? And you don't know when and you don't know where. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm not driving. I'm walking. I'm taking the bus. But Jesus tells us ahead of time, I've said these things to you so that you may have peace. That, that's, that's not what happened. You're telling me ahead of time that life's going to be hard and I'm going to be persecuted and people are going to hate me and that's so I can have peace? What's your definition of peace? Because you've created anxiety, <laughs> not peace. And then he goes on and he doubles, doubles down. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. Not helpful. Like this is not getting better. But then all of a sudden he says these words, take heart. I've overcome the world. <laughs> I love this. So Jesus acknowledges the fact that we live in a challenging world. And in the midst of that challenging world in which we live, he reassures us. Yes, this world will cause anxiety. Yes, this world will cause pain. But you will have peace. And you will be victorious. How's that going to come about? How are you going to make that happen? He simply utters these words, I have overcome the world. And that's the gospel word. Bad news first, good news second. Because you don't know why the good news is good unless you understand why the bad news is bad. 
Which is why it's so crazy that so many churches and ministries are like, oh, let's not do the bad stuff. Because then people will feel icky. Yeah, but then their good news apprehension will be diminished. And they'll kind of yawn at the things of God. Because they don't know how bad it really is. But once you know how bad it really is, all the good news is good. And so Jesus tells them ahead of time, I've overcome Even though it's hard, I've overcome, and I'm telling you ahead of time because I don't want you to quit. Because so many people quit when life is hard. So many people fall away because they have falsely believed that God's job description is to make you comfy. And when you're not comfy, we go, God, where are you? So Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I told you ahead of time how hard it's going to be to keep you from falling away. You see, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you so that when, the, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, when life gets really, really hard... And you're like, why, oh God, is this happening to me? In that moment, we can remember, wait a minute, God told me ahead of time it's going to be hard. Well, that's right. And he also told me he's overcome the world. Oh, all right. Jesus encourages us not to fall away. And he tells us ahead of time how bad it's going to be. By saying, yes, you will have anxiety in this world, but in me you will have peace. I've overcome the world. So don't fret about the world's antagonistic attitude towards you. Now that should be sufficient for us to be like, okay, all right, I can press on. All right, God promised he'll be there. All right, that's good. But Jesus does one even better. Not only does he tell us ahead of time by his grace and mercy, forewarning us, preparing us for the difficulty that awaits us and promising that he will come through for us, but then all of a sudden he promises that there will be another helper to come alongside of us. And here's what Jesus promises. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Look at this. For he dwells with you and he will be in you. Oh. What I love about this is, I don't know that we've ever pointed this, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but why would Jesus promise another helper if you and I have the ability within ourselves to take care of ourselves. The fact that the Holy Spirit is called another helper is evidence that you and I do not have what it takes to live a life pleasing to God. We need help. And it just so happens that God provides a helper. And this helper is called the spirit of truth who not only dwells with believers, but will one day be in believers. These things, Jesus says, I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. 
But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's not a throwaway verse, by the way. The Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the word of Jesus. And then he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You see, because the world promises comfy. But Jesus says, no, I don't promise you comfy. I promise you endurance through anything. Different. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I'm with you right now. But one day the Holy Spirit will be with you always. My peace I'm going to leave with you. And when the helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, look at what the primary responsibility of the Holy Spirit is. The word of Christ, remembering the word of Christ, he will bear witness about me. This helper, the Holy Spirit, will facilitate peace and encouragement because he will be with us And he will be in us, helping us to see the glories of Christ, understanding the word of Christ, remembering the word of Christ, so that the spirit bears witness about Christ. You're starting to get the sense that the Holy Spirit, as one uh, theologian says, is the shy member of the Trinity. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not all about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, many people at that time are like, wait, what? So you're the Messiah and you're telling me it's better for me, for you, the Messiah, to leave? How's that? Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... What will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Once again, how many people are lining up to be convicted? (laughs) Nobody. And it's so interesting that many ministries and churches actually would say that they are a spirit-filled entity because there is a lack of conviction. You feel good when you go. You never feel bad. You never hear about sin. You never hear about your poor choices and how that affects you. You only hear that you are awesome. And God will help you discover your inner awesomeness. (laughs) And I go, how in the world is that a spirit-filled ministry when there's no conviction? We continue on. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you can't bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When you put all these things together, what you realize is when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of somebody, the primary responsibility or the primary job of the Holy Spirit 
is to awaken you and to open your eyes to the glory of Jesus. And he bears witness, that is, he testifies to the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, that he is the Son of God and that he has come to ransom and redeem sinners from the wrath of God. And the Holy Spirit will lead people into that truth. And when they discover that truth and at times forget it, he will bring it to remembrance that Jesus is beautiful and glorious and he is the Savior. And that Holy Spirit will abide in us, giving us peace and encouragement that these things are true. Many people today will oftentimes associate the presence of the Holy Spirit only in terms of sensationalism. What I mean is this. The evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells in somebody is if they do something crazy. Do they speak in tongues? Do they heal? Um, Is there dancing? Is there holy laughter? Um, Are there prophetic utterances? And I'm here to say that's not the spirit's primary job the spirit's primary job is to open the eyes of your heart to see the glorious beauty of Jesus so when the Holy Spirit indwells us the Holy Spirit will cause us to treasure Christ now the question I have is how do you receive the spirit how do you go about doing that Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In him you also, in Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So when you heard the gospel with faith, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, you received the Spirit, the helper, the Spirit of truth, when you hear the gospel with faith. What's shocking to me is there are literally churches and ministries that have no gospel but claim to have spirit. Nope. It's impossible. It's impossible to preach, to not preach, excuse me, to not preach about the perils of sin and the glorious beauties of Christ living for us, dying for us, rising for us. And to simultaneously say we are a ministry or church of the Spirit. You can't do that. Because the Spirit only comes through gospel preaching and is received through hearing the gospel with faith. Maybe you don't believe me. Galatians 3. Let me ask you only this, Paul says. It's a rhetorical question. If you read the rest of the passage, you would know that his answer, he wants you to answer with the second part. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is hearing with faith. Now, of course, you and I may ask the question, hearing what with faith? Uh, Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through The word of Christ. Now what is the word of Christ? It's the gospel. 
Therefore, when you hear the gospel with faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides you into Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, Christ-remembering, Christ-treasuring love for Jesus. And when you have the Holy Spirit through faith, you become something that is incredible. You become someone who overcomes the world. Here's how John put it. For everyone who has been born overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Now people will take this verse, verse 4, and they'll say, the way that you overcome the difficulties in your life is you need to suck it up and, and pull yourself up out of your own bootstraps. Here's seven irrefutable laws to awesomeness. Here's five ways to use your finances in such a way that God is glorified and you prosper and all this stuff. And it's just law, 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 law. Do you receive the Spirit through works of the law or do you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith. So when people say our faith causes us to overcome, what they mean is the intensity of your faith, he's on fire for God. Or, or the like, I don't know, I don't know how to word this, but like the emotional side of your faith, raising hands during singing, falling down, weeping, crying, it's like that person has faith. But I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, your faith is only as good as the object in which you believe. If I believe wholeheartedly, passionately, I, I created my own website, I got Facebook groups surrounding the idea that I can swan dive off the Golden Gate Bridge and live. No matter how intense my feelings, no matter how intense and genuine and sincere my faith is that that is true, I'm still going to die. Because your faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. So what is your faith in? Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Another way to say it is, your faith that overcomes the world can only overcome the world when it is faith which comes from hearing the gospel. If you don't hear the gospel with faith, you won't overcome anything. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so John goes on to say, little children, you are from God. And you have overcome them, referring to the powers, antichrists, and the darkness of this world. He says, you have overcome them. How? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let me ask you the question, who is in you, believer? The Holy Spirit is in me. And if the Holy Spirit is in me because I have heard the gospel with faith then there is nothing outside of me which is more powerful than he who lives in me. Therefore, my faith is what causes me to overcome the world which is opposed to me, but it's not me who does it. It is Christ who's in me by the Holy Spirit. And that comes through hearing the gospel with faith. This is incredible. Last thing. 
What happens to the person who hears the gospel with faith and has the indwelling Holy Spirit? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Your faith in Jesus is the source of strength and power because your faith in Jesus is how you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, there is no one greater than God. That's, that's encouraging. I don't know about you, but that's like, okay, I can wake up tomorrow. I can face the day tomorrow because he who is in me is greater than who, he who is outside of me, whoever that may be. Let's go. Every morning, let's go. But not only does the Spirit empower us to overcome the hostile world we live in, the Spirit also secures us and guarantees us that God will never leave us. Go back to Ephesians 1, and we look at 13 and 14. We hear the gospel with faith. We receive the Holy Spirit who seals us. And the Holy Spirit living inside of us is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day we acquire it. Which means when the Holy Spirit indwells us, in that moment you are sealed and guaranteed that God's going to see you all the way home. He's not going to let you fall. He is not going to let you dwindle. He's going to preserve you. Or as Ephesians 4 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by your disobedience, but you need to realize the Spirit of God is whom you were sealed, by whom you were sealed for that day of redemption. In other words, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and has sealed you for the day of redemption. So from now until then, you are sealed. And nobody's going to pop that lid and pour you out. You're sealed. Not only that, but then we go on to read in like 1 Corinthians that it is God who established us together collectively, the church in Christ. And he has anointed us. And he has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So it's like the Bible's like doubling down here. Don't worry about the world. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And we may reply, it's easy for you to say, I live a hard life. To which we reply, yes, but God by his spirit and his infinite grace and mercy has sealed me for the day of redemption, guaranteeing me that he will see me to the end. Oh, yeah. I can wake up tomorrow. Or we read in 1 Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are risen to what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you. So Jesus is storing your inheritance, by the way, Ephesians 1:14, a guaranteed inheritance. And how is it being kept for you? 
Verse 5. By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God, by his infinite power, is guarding you right now in this moment so that he will see you all the way home. And he has sealed you, guaranteeing to you the unfading, the imperishable, the undefiled inheritance is yours. And there's no power outside of us that is greater than he who lives in us. Now I'm going to say something controversial. No power, not even your free will. Not even the power of your own free will is a superior power than God's power to keep you his own. How reassuring is that? I didn't choose myself into the faith and I won't choose myself out of it. God will keep me. (laughs) So we could conclude this. God gives us his spirit to seal us for salvation so that we would not lose heart as we live in this dangerous, conflicted world. The spirit that is in us is greater than anything outside of us. And we receive that spirit through hearing the gospel with faith so that our union with Christ, we can be secure and sure that we are in Christ and he in us because of the spirit that indwells us. That's how John puts it in 1 John 4. A definition of union with Christ can simply be this. I am in him and he is in me. Now, how do we know that you're in Christ? How do you know that Christ is in you? How? Because the Spirit. If I possess the Spirit of God, then that is all the proof that is needed that I am in him and he is in me. And of course, the question is, well, how do I know I have the Spirit? Which comes back to the whole manifestations of the Spirit in the spectacular or sensational. Some traditions will say you only have the Spirit if you speak in tongues or perform miracles. And I would say, if I have more time, oof, I would say that's a misunderstanding of that text. Instead, I would say, well, what's the whole point of union with Christ? What's its purpose? Well, it's to glorify God, okay? And what does union of Christ produce in us? Holiness. Okay. And Jesus paid to make that possible. Okay. And now he's promised that he will see us to the end. Okay. So how do you know if you have the spirit? And here would be my answer. You know you have the spirit of truth or the helper living in you. When your life is becoming increasingly more like Jesus. It's simple. It's simple. Are you more like Jesus today than you were last week, last month, last year, last decade? Here's how Jesus put it. If you remember that when the helper comes, I will send, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father. He, he, he proceeds from the Father. He, Remember, he will bear witness about me. He will glorify me. And when I start to get from these verses is when the Holy Spirit lives in you, it seems like what he does to you 
is he gets you away from yourself and on Jesus. It seems like the Holy Spirit's main concern is that you fall in love with Jesus. It seems like the Holy Spirit wants you to become like Jesus. That's his point. Or as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And if Christ is increasing in you and you, your sinful you that loves the world, is decreasing, then you can be certain that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The likeness of Christ is what the Spirit is doing in you, forming you more and more into his image. There's an aspect of salvation in our inheritance that is often downplayed in our culture, and that is holiness. I think it's a tragedy, honestly, that so many Christians have either undervalued the call to holiness or they have overemphasized some sort of distorted version of holiness. I think that's a travesty. The reality is God is holy and what it means to be saved is to be brought to God. And if we are brought to God, it makes sense that we, in becoming like him, would be holy because he is holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. So our holy God wants us to be holy. And I believe that one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit lives in you is when you are growing in holiness. When you are growing in Christ-likeness. When you are becoming less of yourself and more like Jesus. Let me show you. When you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught at him, that is, you heard the gospel with faith, you were taught to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That is, your old life, which loved the world. And you were taught in Christ to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self. Now watch this last little clause. The new self is created after the likeness of God. What does that mean? It means in true righteousness and holiness. The new self, the new identity that God grants to us is an identity of holiness. Now, why does God want us to be holy? Because he's holy and we're supposed to be like him. As Will read today, prepare your minds for action. Renew your minds, but prepare it for action. Be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is the day of redemption. And he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your former love of the world. Don't be conformed to that. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What comes to your mind when you think of holiness? Do you think of like the fundamentalist stuff, which is like, hey man, don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls, I do. Like, don't go to the movies, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think in, small, in, in some small measure, that was a form of godliness, but had no power. 
Um, more recently, during the Jesus people times of the 70s and the church growth era, the 80s and the attractional church in the 90s and the Jesus freak time, then it became uh, holiness was understood as when you have a personal quiet time, when you go on a short-term missions trip, when you serve the poor, when you are in a discipleship group, when you go to church. Now, there's wisdom in not watching some movies. There is wisdom in not getting hammered. There is great wisdom in not doing some things, and there's great wisdom in doing other things. But at its core, what it means to be holy is to be like Jesus. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, our salvation is all about holiness. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. Do you notice that? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He redeemed us so that we can be holy. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why did God predestine? Why did the Apostle Paul talk about predestination? To give encouragement to those who are in the midst of struggle that God's eternal electing love is for them. Now, what's the point of God's eternal electing love? It's that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the point. The whole point of being saved is to be saved from the wrath of God and to be saved to a conformity to Jesus. That's the whole point. And some people will ask themselves the question or they'll say, well, I just want to know God's will for my life. <laughs> I hear this all the time. What does God want for me? I have no idea. I don't know what you're supposed to wear tomorrow. I don't know what job you're supposed to take or what school you should apply to. I have no idea. But I do know this. Without a shadow of a doubt, God's will for you is that you be sanctified. <laughs> what does it mean to be sanctified? Set apart for God's purposes. I don't know what you're supposed to wear tomorrow, but I do know whatever you choose should lead to your sanctification, your holiness. I don't know what school you're supposed to go to, but I do know that whatever it is you choose should be leading you towards holiness. I don't know what job you're supposed to take. I don't know what kind of food you're going to eat this afternoon. But I do know that all those things ought to be leading you towards Christ-likeness and holiness. I do know that. That's why it's easy for me at times when somebody says, I think I should do this with my life. And I go, what? No. Well, why not? Well, because that's not going to lead you to your holiness. But we don't think in those categories, do we? Not often. For believers, if you notice the text I'm reading, there's not one single time where it said, you better be holy and then God will accept you. Every single time it says God has redeemed you, he's given you a new identity, and he's commanding you to live in light of that identity. The same exact process that he gave us in the book of Hosea. He redeems you, gives you an identity, and then he says, go live in light of that identity. Now, here's what's so reassuring, brothers and sisters, so reassuring, is that you are already perfectly holy. 
but you are not yet perfectly holy. <laughs> so which is it? Yes. <laughs> Here's what Hebrews says. By, the, by that will, talking about Jesus' will to do what the Father has commanded, to be obedient on our behalf, we have been sanctified. You see that? There's a past action which resulted in a present reality, which is finished. We are sanctified. We are holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. There is no other sacrifice. It's done. It wasn't when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he says, it is finished? Question mark. No. It is finished. Declarative, exclamation point, done deal. You are sanctified. You are holy. And then watch this in verse 14. By a single offering that Jesus has given of his life, he has perfected for all time. Not like right now. Not like just your past sins, but your future ones. That's on you, Jack. You better figure it out. No, no, no. He has perfected you for all time. Well, who exactly? He's perfected those who are being sanctified. The proof that you are once and for all declared holy and saved by God. The proof that that has happened in your life is that you are in a process of becoming more and more holy. If there is no evidence that you are growing in holiness, that's what it means to be sanctified, then there is no assurance that you are saved. Being saved isn't necessarily tied to an experience or an emotion or something that you've signed or whatever. You being saved is evidenced by a growing holiness where you are becoming more like Jesus. The work that God starts in us, God in his grace and mercy will see to it to bring it to completion. This is what's so reassuring. If, if a work in me by the Holy Spirit has started to make me more and more like Jesus, then here's a promise for you. That work that God has started, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When either you die or Jesus returns, your sanctification will be complete. It will be finally and fully done. But in the meantime, until that day of redemption where Jesus returns or you die, in the meantime, you and I who have heard the gospel with faith and have received the Holy Spirit are now entered into a process in which we are becoming more and more holy. And that process is the evidence that you are united to Christ because it's a process brought about within us by the Holy Spirit. Your sanctification is finished. But your sanctification has only just begun. But we live in America. We want to microwave everything. We want the fastest, easiest way. So we're like, I believed in Jesus. I want to be holy by Tuesday. And you're like, man, what's wrong with you? It's going to take a lifetime. It's going to take a lifetime from today until you're dead or Jesus returns. Everything in your life is working for your good. What does that mean? It's working to make you more and more like Jesus. God wastes nothing. 
He's going to make you like Jesus for your everlasting joy. (laughs) It's good. But I know people who put their security and their assurance not in Jesus, but they put their security and assurance in their own experiences and their own efforts. I'm building on decades, a decade or more of ministry counseling. And I've heard people tell me time and time again, I know that I'm saved because I went to this concert one time and man, I was so like moved and I was like crying and the music was so good and I just know God met me there. How do you, how do you know that it wasn't just emotion brought about by entertaining music? How do you know for sure that that's not the cause? I've had people say, yeah, I know I'm safe for sure because I remember filling out this decision card when I was six or 16 or whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they said, if I'm sincere when I pray this prayer, then I know I'm saved. How do you know that you, you were sincere enough? Because I've been around a lot of kids and adolescent people. They don't even know their own emotions. So how do you know at six or 16 that you were like sincere enough? You see, when you have your confidence or security rooted in your efforts or some experience, it means your confidence is in yourself. But if we're going to avoid spiritual anxiety, our confidence needs to be outside of ourselves because ourselves is the problem. (laughs) Here's what Rankin Wilson writes in his book, Union with Christ. He says, if we base our objective standing before God on our subjective day-to-day performance, we have a recipe for spiritual depression. It's grounding our confidence before God and others on the sinking sand of our shifting performance. He says, on days you do well, you feel great. You start the day early in prayer. You helped others, you shared the gospel with your neighbor, you're flying high, you're a great Christian, good job. But just a day later, because that's usually Monday, right? But just a day later, you woke up late, you didn't pray, you didn't read your Bible, you were short with your coworker, you lacked patience, and then you blasted the horn at someone on the road, and it turns out it was your neighbor who you just yesterday talked to about Jesus. And so you come crashing down and you wonder to yourself, what is wrong with me? What kind of Christian am I? And then we're up and then we're down. We're up and then we're down. I don't know if you have experienced that or you can relate to that. I know I do. And I know exactly what he's talking about. Many of us live this way. God has called us to holiness. It's not an option. But we can sometimes feel that that holiness is too daunting, too difficult, or too demanding. You felt that way before? You can talk back to me, that's all right. I was just bragging the other day that the 8.30 a.m. service is way more responsive than the 10.30. (laughs) To your great shame. Here's what I've realized, and I don't know if you can relate to this. But when I fail in holiness, I become defeated. I'll never be able to do this. Or I become cynical. No one's ever going to be able to do this. This is ridiculous. Or I become just apathetic. 
resigned to the fact that no one can do it, so why bother? I don't know if you can relate to any of those three. But if you can, this is where union with Christ pays its dividends. This is where union with Christ will change your life. If you've been paying attention, you've noticed I've been talking about how God will make us holy. And I've also been talking about how God commanded us to be holy. So which is it? Does God do all the holiness or are we supposed to do the holiness? And the answer is yes. In probably the most influential book I've ever read on this topic, it's by a man named Jerry Bridges. It's a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. It's the most God-centered, gospel-driven, Christ-glorifying book on how to pursue holiness. And here's what he writes. He says, no one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. When we have a command to holiness, what's really interesting to me is um, some people will fall in one of two ditches. They know they're supposed to follow Jesus, but at times they will fail. And so the response will be, you just got to believe the gospel more. You just got to sit in the exquisite, extravagant love of God and let his loving arms wrap you up and let him whisper sweet, tender truths to you in your secret place. That's a quote, by the way, from a book. Oh, it's weird. It's like, no, Jesus isn't my boyfriend. Or the other side of it is like, man, I'm just failing. I'm not doing well. The other side of it is like, you know what? Suck it up. You need to live a radically discipled life. You need to risk. Go do hard things. You live in the suburbs? What's wrong with you? Go overseas. Do something with your life. You're like, okay. If you're focusing on the radical discipleship, eventually you're going to get exhausted. You can't maintain that kind of energy. If you're on this side of just sitting in God's extravagant grace, eventually you'll be like, ah, holiness, who cares? I'm just basking in the warmth of God's love. And you won't do anything. And what I've realized is the solution to either one of these pits where you become careless of holiness or you become exhausted from holiness, the solution is union with Christ. Because union with Christ is an anchor for our soul. How? Union with Christ tells us that our righteousness and our holiness is not derived from our performance, but is granted to us by God's grace so that our truest and most satisfying life is found hidden in Jesus. So that no matter how high we get with obedience or no matter how low we go with our disobedience, that God's grace and mercy is there, rock solid, anchoring our soul like a boat that is anchored when the tide rises and the tide goes out and whether there's waves, the boat is secure in the grace of Jesus. Imagine for a second with me, you're sitting up on the balcony and you're looking down or you're on top of a roof looking down. And let's say there's a bunch of rain happening. Somebody runs out of the building or whatever and, 
and somebody has a big giant umbrella. The reality is if you watch this person run underneath the umbrella, they disappear. And they disappear under the covering of an umbrella so that the rains don't touch them. And in a similar way, when God from his perspective looks down at us and the raining of accusations and sin and condemnation are pouring out on us, Jesus, like a person with an umbrella standing out in the midst of that, calls us to himself and we disappear underneath his umbrella, which reads at the top, forgiven. So that when Jesus welcomes us to his side and we are covered by that umbrella of his grace and forgiveness, God the Father looks down and what does he see? He does not see our sin. He does not see our condemnation. He sees the righteousness of his son. And since we're hidden in Christ, under that umbrella, to us those words of well done, that good and faithful servant, are not just for him, they're for us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Union with Christ means you are in Christ. When you are afraid that you failed yet again and God is no longer for you, remember that you are in Christ, that it is his grace that anchors you in the midst of life's storms. But also, you need to remember, not only are you in Christ, but he is in you. And when Christ is living in you by the Holy Spirit, you are propelled to live in holiness. Here's what I mean. Jesus is the Holy One who lived a perfect life. Jesus is the one who promised to send the Holy Spirit to live in you. And the Holy Spirit is sent by the Holy Son, Jesus, and the Holy Father, our God. So it makes sense that since God is holy, that when you have him living in you, you are also to pursue holiness. Did you guys get that? Okay. So when you are thinking that you are tired, that holiness is too difficult, you need to remember that the Spirit of God is living in you and he will make you holy. So like the anchor where a boat will be able to weather the, the, uh, the tides and won't drift away, so also think of yourself like a sailboat. Man, when you have the Holy Spirit, you're just bringing up... <laughs> You got the sails there. The Holy Spirit is blowing. You got the wind at your back. And so you can just cruise along. Woo, yeah. I'm sailing. Because the Holy Spirit is compelling me. It's pushing me. It's, it's leading me. But we need to walk by faith in this. Because it isn't just you wake up in the morning, you're like, give me obedience. Instead, you look at your neighbor who you're having a hard time loving. And you go, Lord, I don't know how to love this guy or this woman the way I'm supposed to, but I'm going to step out in faith that I'm just going to love them as best I know how, and you're going to give me the love in my heart, and you're going to give me the love that I need to do it well. Okay, here I go. And you walk by faith that God will be there for you. God doesn't, we don't have this anymore, but you remember the prepaid uh, phone cards, so that way you wouldn't call collect. God doesn't give you grace on a prepaid visa card or anything like that. He gives you this grace in the moment you need it. And so if you never walk out in faith, you'll never get the grace you need. We walk by faith, not by sight. The wind is at your back, brothers and sisters. 
That's why union with Christ is the solution. The full demands of the law are met in Jesus. The fullness of God's love are found in Jesus. Some people will say, yes, Jesus is the compassionate one. He found the woman caught in adultery. And what did he say? You who have not sinned, cast the first stone or whatever. And people are like, oh, gosh. But do you remember what he told her right after that? He was like, whistled to her. Hey, come over here real quick. I got something for you. Go and sin no more. People forget the last part. But in Jesus, you have this amazing reality of undiluted grace. I will welcome you. And uncompromising obedience. Go and sin no more. Many of us, if we're honest, we live with a gap in our life. The gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. If you're honest, you can admit that. Union with Christ solves that. When you fall flat on your face as a failure, you are secure in Christ. And when you don't feel like you have enough energy to do it, you have the spirit of Christ living in you. You have an anchor for your soul and the wind is at your back. You can wake up tomorrow and you can get it going. Last verse. Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. What grace. Right now, we are children of God. Now, the reason why the world does not know us is that it does not, did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's an anchor for the soul. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he does appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right now, you don't look as much like Jesus as you one day will look like. But when Jesus returns or you die and you meet him, then you'll see him and you'll become just like him for your everlasting joy. But in the meantime, you have to know, anchor your soul in the reality that you are a child of God. And by the grace of God, he's going to keep you. But at the same time, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes or everyone who hopes in this way purifies himself as he is pure. If you long for the day of being with Jesus, then you will get about the business of becoming like Jesus. It's both. The wind is at your back. Let's sail, brothers and sisters. And yet at the same time, we have an anchor for the soul. We are united to Christ. We are in him and he is in us because we have heard the gospel with faith and the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is causing us to become transformed and conformed more into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Oh, press on, brothers and sisters, press on. God is for you. He's not against you. Yes. Father, thank you that our union with Christ by the Spirit is our gospel security. It is a promise that you will make good on because you've already made good on it. 
When we heard the gospel with faith, you sealed us with the Holy Spirit. And you guaranteed to us that we will have the inheritance which is undefiled, unspoiled, kept in heaven for us. And you're guarding us until that day. You are keeping us secure in you until that day. So, Father, for those people who are here today believing in you, who feel exhausted by the pursuit of holiness, God, I pray that you would empower them to walk by faith. Trust that your grace is sufficient. And for those, Lord, who believe that the pursuit of holiness is irrelevant because grace is enough, I pray that they would see that you have saved not only us from your wrath, but you have saved us to holiness. So God, grant to us what we need. In this troubling world, grant to us what we need. An anchor for the soul or the reminder that we have the wind at our backs. So Father, thank you for Jesus in whom we have every spiritual blessing. And by the Spirit, we will one day enjoy his presence when we are finally and fully like him. What a joy. Help us to sing vigorously. God, help us to sing passionately and help us to sing honestly that everything we have is not because of us, but because of Christ. It's in his name we pray.